Good evening and welcome to the ninth annual Literary Evening sponsored by the Library Committee. This has nothing to do with this evening, but I'm going to tell a joke just to lighten up the crowd. Uh, my mother was Norwegian and uh, uh, we loved to laugh at each other. Uh, Oli and Lena had been married for decades and then all of a sudden Lena died. Well, Oli had to call the undertaker. He says, Mr. Undertaker, uh, you need to come and get my wife. She just died. And he says, well, where do you live? And so Oli says, well, I live at the corner of eucalyptus and hydrangea. And he says, well, can you spell that for me? He, he thought a moment and he in, in his hesitation, he says, well, how about if I just drag her down to Maple? <laughs> you know, it was nine years ago as the committee was developing goals for the library, when we thought of our new pastor of only a few months, and we remembered his and his wife's expertise in the, and learning in English literature. We thought then and still think today that these skills of theirs could help us promote the library and its work. They eagerly and graciously agreed to the task, and so here we are nine years later. These goals of which I spoke are, one, to have a fun evening with Pastor Scott and Christina, to encourage you to use the library and its many resources, and to raise some money for resource acquisition through a free will offering, which will be received later this evening. Our library is a treasure with a broad range of materials available for your use, from children's picture books and videos, to books on marriage and marital relationships, to living with hope, to suffering illness and dealing with death, to adult fiction and biography, church history, Christian theology, the life of Christ, biblical commentary, and a superb reference section. So thank you all for being here. We look forward to a delightful evening. You know, the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 12 says that God appointed, has appointed first apostles, then prophets, then teachers, and others for ministry. I have to say that I think he simply forgot to put library volunteers on this list. They are faithful and energetic workers who purchase books for the library, prepare and number them for the shelves, reshelve borrowed books, keep the website current, and accomplish a host of other tasks. They are quiet in their ministry and are faithful in their service. And if any of you are interested in helping in this ministry in any way, please contact one of them. At this point, I would like all the library volunteers, both past and present, to please stand for recognition. Please stand if you're a library committee member or in the past or the present. <laughs> Big round of applause for them. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. And all the volunteers are led in their tasks by a wonderful and caring leader, Candy Loesch. She is our coordinator of library ministries, and to her we look for guidance and support. Where is Candy? Would she stand, please? Candy? There she is, right in the middle aisle. How about a big welcome and thanks for Candy? She's wonderful. Our entire library operation is under the leadership of one of the masters of biblical scholarship and teaching. He carefully leads, guides, and directs all of us in this ministry. His love of learning and teaching presents itself in so many ways. Let's give a big thank you to Scott Mann, Minister of Christian Growth. Where is Scott? There he is, back there at the end. We wish also to thank Pastor Scott and his wife, Christina, for all the work and time they put into these annual affairs. 
if they had not been English literature scholars, they wouldn't have been roped into this event and they could have spent the evening with their family. <laughs> but here they are. And you should know that Christina never wrote a PhD dissertation because she fell in love and got married instead. Yes, but the title of Pastor Scott's PhD dissertation in English literature is The Persistence of Memory, Reactionary Politics, Sexual Heresy, and Catholic Nostalgia in English Literature, 1533 to 1677. <laughs> Mercifully, that topic is not on tonight's agenda. <laughs> but these evenings have always been a great treat for me, and I am certain tonight will be one for you also. Let me finish with a word about the work of the library. I find the parable of the growing seed an apt metaphor for the work of the library. This parable, found only in Mark's gospel, reads, The kingdom of God is like this, a man scatters seed on the, ground, on the land. He goes to bed at night and gets up in the morning, and the seed sprouts and grows. How? He doesn't know. The ground produces a crop by itself, first the blade, then the ear, then full-grown corn in the ear. But as soon as the crop is ripe, he plies the sickle because harvest time has come. Gathered within the books of all, uh, and other resources of the library are many seeds. They are scattered amongst our thoughts as we read or listen. The Holy Spirit then nurtures those seeds. How? We do not know. Until mature growth is accomplished, brought about quite apart from the sower. The only human activity in this parable is waiting in faith confident of a harvest to come. The gospel prospers of itself. This is how the library plants seeds, which thrive and flourish by the Holy Spirit. How? We do not know. And uh, two little announcements. Uh, there is a, uh, before I give it over to the Dudleys, there is a men's uh, book club that meets on Wednesdays in the morning. If you're interested, see John Mizell at the back and visit the book tables back there on your way out. So now I give you the Dudleys. Thank you very much. So, Jerry, how did you find out the title of my dissertation? Nine years ago, you told us. Oh, I told you. Okay. <laughs> I had one person once, part of this church, ask if she could read my dissertation. And I said, no, no, you really don't want to. Trust me, you really don't want to. But she kept persisting. So I finally brought her a copy. And within about two days, she brought it back. And she said, never mind. That's all of it. That's true. Um, we are going to... Let me open in prayer before, we, before I start. Father, thank you for great literature. Thank you for the minds that uh, you have given people to create and express themselves and ask that uh, as we listen to this literature that does not directly apply to you, uh, that we would still hear your messages and that we would still hear uh, ways that you call us, how you call us to be as people. And pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, we are going to look at three works tonight, uh, and my wife and I were talking on the way here, all of which are actually rather depressing, so I'm glad that Jerry started with a, a joke, such as it was, um, <laughs> because the, the works are slightly depressing. Uh, and, we're, and by the way, thank you for coming. We're always shocked that anyone shows up to this. Uh, when we taught, people had to come to our classes, but you are free agents and you don't really have to, but we're very grateful that you indulge us in our former career. We're going to talk tonight about three different works that, and look at the theme of the American dream in all uh, three of these works. Uh, and I'm going to take just a few moments to kind of set this up and uh, what that looks like, and then we'll get to the, the works. 
Uh, on the most superficial sense, the American dream is really about economic prosperity. You know, the land of plenty and opportunity where everyone can get a house, a car, you know, a good job, and that each generation can do a little bit better economically than the previous generation. At a deeper level, the American dream is really about a new kind of social order in which anyone can rise to any, any place limited only by themselves and that the old limitations of, of race or gender and particularly class and the social strata that you were born into, that those barriers are broken. And there's a new social order in which people can rise to the level of their own limits outside of any artificial limits that have been placed on them. So at a deeper level, it's about something a little nobler than just a house and a car and a swimming pool and all of that. It is enshrined in our founding documents from the very beginning. Uh, the Declaration of Independence asserts that all men are created equal and are endowed by their creator with certain inalienable rights. Among these are life, liberty, and... That is a weird sentence in a political document. Really, if you think about it, other political documents of the time were, didn't, wouldn't have something like that. It's so individualistic and it, a little bit materialistic. You know, the French Revolution, liberté and égalité and fraternité, right? Those are the kinds of high ideals, but the pursuit of happiness is very focused on the individual. But that's part of what makes America unique, that we believe that individuals, uh, the individual has a right to be happy. And, and, and so it's right there in our founding documents. You could even go back further to the Puritans, and I'll, I'll touch on that in a minute. Even though it's there from the beginning, the phrase itself, American Dream, is actually not coined until the 30s, which I think is interesting that there in our economic, greatest economic disaster, you get this, you get this attention on this American Dream, which on the surface level is about economic prosperity. There are four sub-themes that uh, Christine and I are going to talk about tonight that run through the American dream. And I just want to list those four sub-themes. And all four of these sub-themes, if you just think about them, get their way into our theology and our church culture. And so, you know, a lot of our Christianity in America, well, in any culture, is infected by the culture around you. And the American dream infects our Christian uh, culture in America, for better or for worse. There are four sub-themes that we want to look at. The first is what I said, economic prosperity, rags to riches. You come as an immigrant to America with nothing, and then you make something of yourself. You build an empire, and everyone gets a house and a car in the suburbs and all of that. That's the first sub-theme, the economic prosperity. Second sub-theme I just touched on as well is the individual carving his place in society. The American dream is deeply rooted in individualism and the ability of the individual to stand out. You know, you come as an immigrant and you rise to, to whatever levels you can rise to and you make something of yourself. A writer named Gerard Early says that 2,000 years from now, when folks study American culture, America will be remembered for three things. Our constitution, jazz, and baseball. <laughs> I think he's dead on. And what all three of those things have in common is they all are all about how the individual navigates his way through the communal, through the corporate. The Constitution, how does the individual assert his or her political rights? Uh, and the Bill of Rights, what are our rights? The uh, uh, jazz is about how the individual musician works with the rest of the group, improvising and yet working together in unison. 
Baseball is not really a team sport. It's a series of individual moments. There's not a moment you're watching the whole team. It's pitcher, batter, runner, fielder, right? And, and yet somehow it weaves together for the corporate good. America is, the American dream is baseball. How does the individual rise within the corporate and how does the individual's rise somehow also help the whole culture, also help the, so, the whole community? And there's this belief in the American dream that if every person can rise to their own economic prosperity, somehow that will create prosperity for everyone. The third sub-theme in the American dream is the frontier experience. The American dream is very much dominated by pushing into new frontiers. Now, for most of our history, that was westward. In 1774, the governor of Virginia said that Americans are forever imagining the lands further off are still better than those upon which they are already settled. If Americans attained paradise, they would move on if they heard of a better place farther west. <laughs> and there's something in the American dream about more is better. Nirvana is always just a step ahead. We have to go forward, and it's all throughout our history. Go west, young man, go west, right? That's where your prosperity lies. All the way to The Graduate in 1969. You know, go west, young man, go west, turns into that what? That classic line in The Graduate. Benjamin, I have one word for you. Plastics. Right? The Graduate, you know, the go west becomes plastic. There's always this forward momentum. Movement is a very important part of the American dream. Think of our phrases, upward mobility, climbing the corporate ladder, movement pushing into new frontiers. Um, and this is radically different than other cultures. Think of the aristocracies of Europe or the caste systems in Asia, right? Movement is not part of those cultures. Those cultures are about st staying put, right? You're born into a certain class and there you live and there you die as it was with your parents, it will be with your children, everyone in their class, everyone at their level, that's how society is ordered. The American dream is about pushing forward into new frontiers, individual frontiers, spiritual frontiers, corporate frontiers, you know, manifest destiny, all of that stuff, keep moving forward. And after we were out of frontiers, we found new frontiers. Consider this famous line, space, the final frontier. These are the voyages of the star. A uniquely American show, Star Trek, but we're not going to talk about that. <laughs> Finally, the Redeemer Nation. Big part of, or American exceptionalism, a big part of the American dream. From the get-go, the Puritans saw themselves as launching a new civilization that would reform the corrupt ways of Europe. Um, as captured in John Winthrop's sermon where he calls America the city on a hill, a light to the nations, right? And it runs all throughout our history. Again, manifest destiny. We got to go bring civilization to the wilderness, a.k.a. commit genocide, right? I mean, there's a shadow side to all of this. Uh, you, see it even, you see it all the way through the 20th century, the two world wars. Make the world safe for democracy. Get rid of totalitarianism. You hear it in John Kennedy's Berlin Address, right? Not the famous Ich bin ein Berliner, which if you know German, it actually means I am a jelly donut. So really, that's what it means. I am a jelly. It, I hope that speechwriter was fired, right? But, but the other thing Kennedy says in that speech, which is some people ask, what is the difference between communism in the free world. Let them come to Berlin. Right? That this idea of the redeemer nation, that all the way to Mr. Gorbachev tear down this wall. Right? That the American dream isn't just about economic advancement for an individual or for a nation, but that we are meant to be a light to the nations, to bring democracy and freedom and liberty and equality. So economic prosperity, individualism working for the corporate good, the frontier experience, movement, and the redeemer nation.
All four of those themes, if you just think about it, find their way into church. Just parent, I'm not really addressing theology. We're not going to talk about that. But think about how they work into church. We are very individualistic in how we approach church, right? I want it my way. Uh, the whole upward mobility thing, a bigger church must be a better church. When I was in college ministry, I used to joke that I could get a thousand college students to come to my ministry if they would just let me tap a keg every Wednesday night, right? <laughs> Doesn't necessarily mean I did it the right way, right? So uh, bigger is better. It just always into our Christianity. All four of those themes have a dual identity. They're materialistic. They're about economic prosperity, but they're also about uh, uh, political freedom. They're about social freedom, uh, and they even are about spiritual freedom. You know, pushing our, the frontiers of our own soul and about our own of our own morality. So it's not just about rising economically, but politically, even spiritually. A scholar named Ted Ombi talks about the four dreams of American consumerism, and each of these has sort of dual purpose. It's, a, it's materialistic, but it's also political, ideological, social, spiritual. So four dreams of American consumerism. The dream of abundance, that everyone would have enough. The dream of freedom of choice, that you're not just locked down to one deodorant. You have 30 deodorants that you can pick from, right? But that you also have many political parties. You also have many religions. You also have many careers. Freedom of, freedom of choice. Third, uh, dream of American consumerism, the dream of democracy of goods, that everyone can, has equal access to all the goods. And again, that's not just material, that's an egalitarian, uh, a dream of an egalitarian society. And then fourth, the dream of novelty, where new products and new trends push out old conservative trends from the traditional past and usher in a revolution. And even something as new and improved, right, is somehow political at nature, casting out the old traditional conservative, ushering in the new. All right, so that's kind of an overview of the American dream. We're going to pick up on all of those themes. The three works we're going to look at, Mad Men, TV series, The Road by Cormac McCarthy and The Great Gatsby by Fitzgerald, deeply rooted in the American dream. All of them are criti critiques of the American dream because the American dream has a shadow side. Um, as, and so the, you know, they're, they're, it's exposing many of the shadow sides. And you know, there's lots of shadow sides. It wasn't, American dream wasn't open to everyone. It wasn't open to every race for much of our culture. It wasn't open to both genders. Uh, the whole you know, thing with the Native Americans, you know, dreadful. So there is a shadow side, and these three works talk a lot about the shadow side. But I think also these three works, particularly The Great Gatsby, shows the promise of the American dream and what the American dream can bring. Um, that at its best, the American dream is about freedom and equality and all kinds of really good things. And we're going to do them in reverse chronological order, starting with the most recent work, which is Mad Men. Um, this may be the one that many of you haven't seen or maybe even heard of. Uh, it's a, I think it is one of the smartest shows on TV, certainly right now and maybe in the last 10 years. I just think, my wife and I just think it's a brilliant show. And we don't watch it on TV. We just get the Netflix and watch them, you know, like all at once, right? So get addicted to it. And uh, it's won all kinds of awards. It refers to Madison Avenue men, ad, ad men, people who work in advertising agencies. It opens in 1960 with the Kennedy-Nixon presidential race. And each year covers one year of the 60s, each subsequent year of the series. And as it does, it traces all the changing political and social trends of the 60s. And it focuses on a man named Don Draper, who's head, of, uh, creative, uh, who's head of creative at the ad agency Sterling Cooper. Only he's not really Don Draper. He was born Dick Whitman. 
the son of a prostitute who, who, who died giving him birth, was passed to his dad. His dad then died, and he was raised by his stepmother and her new husband in absolute poverty out in rural America during the Depression. When he was in Korea, in the Korean War, one of his uh, buddies in, in the foxhole with him ends up dying, so Dick Whitman takes his ID tags and wears them himself and decides he's going to be that man whose name was Don Draper and goes from there and just creates a whole new life for himself. This is the American dream writ large, right? In America, you can be anyone, literally, right? You can just change your identity. And then he rises up the corporate ladder, and he's the bright star at Sterling Cooper Ad Agency. And I think it's fitting that it's set in an ad agency because advertising is quintessentially the American dream, right? It's the frontier experience put into consumerism, right? You need more. You always need to be advancing more and more and buying more, and this is new and improved and will make you happy, right? One of the characters in the show is a woman named Peggy Olson, and much of the show focuses on her. And she starts as Don Draper's secretary, but rises to become a copywriter. Now, women at that, in those times didn't work in creative, right? They, all they were were secretaries. So she's the first to kind of break the, the, the gender ceiling. And much of the show charts her rise up the corporate ladder in spite of the fact that she's a woman. At one point, she's talking to Don, and she says to him, I want what you have. You have everything and so much of it. And that just kind of captures the American dream, right? You have everything and so much of it. So what I want to do, the first clip I'm going to show you is just the opening credits. And I just want, they're fascinating. I just want you to take a look just at the first 30 seconds of every show, the opening credits. seen this show? There's, oh, a lot of you. Okay, that's great. Uh, the opening credits uh, inspired by two, kind of you can see two influences there, James Bond and uh, Hitchcock, especially North by Northwest. And I can't, I, I keep thinking, why is it black, white, and red? You know, I can't, you know, black and white and red all over. What, what are they doing? I haven't figured that out yet, but maybe one of you can tell me afterwards. And, and in it, you see this man falling, and you were, I guess we're to assume it's Don, because it starts in his office, what looks like his office. And he's falling through a series of advertising posters with slogans from the 60s. One of the ones that you can read is, enjoy the best that America has to offer. So that's the promise, right? And how much advertising tries to link, dig into our hearts, into the American dream, and, and plays off that American dream, that you can have more, and you can have better, and you can rise. And, and so, you know, advertising is so unique in that way that it just, it functions off the American dream. And so you see those posters that are promising the best that America has to offer. And yet, the kind of the, the juxtaposition of the opening credits is that he's falling, right? And so, you, so you're also kind of seeing the, the shadow side of the American dream, that, that, that he's kind of fall, and so it might all fall apart. You know, the office dissolves, it might all just kind of disintegrate. And I think that's one of the shadows of the American dream that has haunted it from the beginning. What if it doesn't last? Can you really keep going up and up and up? Don't you eventually have to go down and down and down? 
What if it's not sustainable? What if more and more and more isn't sustainable? What if there's a generation that comes along that will not be as prosperous as the one that preceded it? And I think by setting in the 60s, the show is working with that because it starts in 1960, kind of at the peak of American power, right? We won World War II, we were economically prosperous, but as you know, as the 60s go forward, right, there's going to be a series of falls, race riots and political unrest. We're going to lose in Vietnam. There's going to be Watergate, 10 years of economic stagflation in the 70s, culminating in Jimmy Carter's malaise, right? So throughout the the show, there's this promise of the American dream, enjoy the best America has to offer, but the fear, the shadow side that what if it can't last? That's been present in the American dream really forever and certainly is with us right now, isn't it? That, you know, this feeling of the economy we're in means signals the end of the American dream and that from now on, it's not more and it's not up, it's down and it's less. All right, in the next scene that I'm going to show, uh, shows a young account executive named Pete Campbell who's very ambitious and he wants to climb the corporate ladder and he comes to tell Don, Don some good news. And then it's followed by a scene where Don's wife, Betty, goes to her psychiatrist. So it's kind of two scenes together. Go ahead, Sergio. Don, I hope I'm not bothering you. Just wanted to let you know I took Duck's talk very seriously. And, without having to crack my Deerfield yearbook, I've brought in an account. Good for you. It's a piece of Vicks Chemical Company, Clearasil. Better potential than any traditional pharmaceutical, I believe. It's a real account, Campbell. How'd that happen? I'm not embarrassed to say my father-in-law is a former salesman, now executive there. That's generous. He's interested in my future. Congratulations. I'm sure with a little bit of lawyering, you're entitled to that bonus. I got the bonus. And Cooper gave me some book by Ayn Rand. He seemed assured, as I hope you are, that I have a significant investment in this company. Well, you do now, don't you? It matters to me that you're impressed. I am. Self-worth and status. You said it. Thanksgiving. It's very nerve-wracking having to deal with getting the family together. My my mother didn't cook last year because she was so sick. And now I'm going to have to deal with Gloria. But it is Thanksgiving and I'm grateful for things. Like this. 
This has helped. Don doesn't think so, but it has. Being able to talk. Just, just me and you and your little pad. It has helped. Do you believe her? <laughs> she just seems so happy, doesn't she? There again, you have the promise of the American dream side by side with some of its shadow side. Um, Pete's excited because he got a new account. That's the promise side. But then the shadow side is how did he get it? Well, his father-in-law. That's not the American dream. That's not each individual working hard and pulling himself up by his bootsteps. That's the old way. That's the you know, connections. That's the aristocratic way. Right? So it's just this kind of undermining that maybe the American dream isn't the American. Maybe there are people who have a lot of advantages, and that just makes it a lot easier if you're well-connected, right? So there's that shadow side. And, and then he says to Don, it matters to me that you're impressed. There's that theme again of the individual trying to rise, trying to stand out amidst the, the corporate, and yet his success, Pete's success, helps the corporate success as well. But there again is the shadow side because, well, how, how much is enough to impress Don? How many accounts does he have to land? When is he there? When does he arrive? And then what does he have to do to hang on to Don's uh, good, uh, good opinion of him? Um, and the, one of the shadow sides of the American dream is if, if the frontier experience is part of it, if it's always moving, pushing, more is better and all that, well, then when do we get there? When do we arrive? And then I just love that little reference, and it's just filled with all kinds of stuff. You know, some book by Anne Rand. So if you've read Anne Rand, right, you just, that, that you could do a whole dissertation just like mine on that one line right there, right? And then it cuts to Betty, Don's wife, in the psychiatrist's office. And so Pete is celebrating this great victory, right? And then notice, what's her first word? Thanksgiving. And then a pause. So right after we hear Pete going on and on about upward mobility, status and self-esteem, that's what it's about, right? We are suddenly told that we have to be thankful for all of our happiness, for all of our blessings, right? But then what's the next thing she says? Thanksgiving, pause. It's very nerve-wracking. It can be very nerve-wracking to be grateful for all your blessings, right? It can really just be very difficult to be grateful for all of your blessings. And indeed, Betty doesn't seem very happy, does she? And as the scene goes on, she reveals that she knows that her husband, Don, is cheating on her. And there is another problem in the American dream. Once you reach that upper-middle-class level, you know, once you have everything and so much of it, uh, something else begins to set in. Boredom and restlessness. And much of the show is about how bored Betty is. In fact, one of my favorite scenes, my wife and I, our favorite scenes in this is in the first season where she's just so bored and she's so frustrated by just being a bored housewife that she goes out, her neighbor has these pigeons and the pigeons just annoy her and, and she just can't stand them. And so she goes out, she takes a shotgun and she goes out to her back suburban yard and starts shooting the pigeons out of the sky with a cigarette dangling out of her mouth. It's just, you know, it's just hilarious. And, the, you know, the whole image there, January Jones, clearly looks like who? Grace Kelly, right? Like, it's just meant to evoke Grace Kelly. And that, 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 that beauty, and yet she's bored, she's restless. Her husband is having an affair. Why? Well, once you have everything and so much of it, what's your next frontier? When you're, that, when you're bored, when you've conquered everything, what do you do? Well, for Don, the next frontier, the westward expansion is women. And lots of them. And he has one right after the other, right after the other. And, you know, so that's that movement. You've got to always keep moving, always keep advancing, conquering new frontiers, even if it's destructive, like an affair. 
Again, another problem of the American dream is if our happiness, you know, if the pursuit of happiness is what we're about, well then, you know, we kind of emphasize the pursuit, which means we never get there, which means there's always got to be something else. And if my new house doesn't do it, and if my new car doesn't do it, and if being, you know, head of creative at Sterling Cooper doesn't do it, then maybe an affair will do it, and maybe, and the show kind of shows that, that shadow side. We never arrived. You know, the pursuit of happiness means we're always pursuing. So we're never getting there. So we're ironically perpetually unhappy because we're so thankful and happy. Okay, the last scene. What's going on in the last scene is Don is, it comes right after the sequence I just showed you. And Don is going to make a pitch. Kodak Eastman uh, has just come out with their carousel, new, what was then in 60, carousel projector, slide projector, right? Only they're not calling it that. They're calling it the wheel. And they really want Don to create an ad campaign that will work the wheel into it because they really like that. You know, something like Kodak has reinvented the wheel or something clever like that, right? And they're shopping around for ad agencies, and Don is very much trying to land this account. And they've got a series of meetings with ad agencies on this day, Kodak does, and Don's going to try to land this account in this pitch. Um, And what he does is the backdrop for this is that his marriage is falling apart. Betty knows he's having an affair. The whole thing's unraveling. But what he's going to do is he's going to use pictures of his own family to sell his ad campaign to Kodak. Go ahead, Sergio. Don Draper and Salvador Romano. This is Joe Harriman and Lynn Taylor. No Eastmans today, unfortunately. They're all back in the lab. It's a wonderful facility, but they don't take vacations. What do they show? Slides of them working? (laughs) So, have you figured out a way to work the wheel into it? We know it's hard because wheels aren't really seen as exciting technology, even though they are the original. Well, technology is a glittering lure. But uh, there's the rare occasion when the public can be engaged on a level beyond flash if they have a sentimental bond with the product. My first job, I was in-house at a fur company with this old pro copywriter, Greek, named Teddy. And Teddy told me the most important idea in advertising is new. Creates an itch. You simply put your product in there as a kind of calamine lotion. But he also talked about a deeper bond with the product. Nostalgia. It's delicate, but potent. Teddy told me that in Greek, nostalgia literally means the pain from an old wound. It's a twinge in your heart, far more powerful than memory alone. This device isn't a spaceship. It's a time machine. It goes backwards and forwards. It takes us to a place where we ache to go again. It's not called the wheel. It's called the carousel. 
lets us travel the way a child travels. Around and around, and back home again. To a place where we know we are loved. Good luck at your next meeting. It's just a brilliant show. I mean, that scene is so well written. I just can't, I just think it's so beautiful. And if you know the characters, it's heartbreaking because their marriages are falling apart and whatnot. And it's, it's, it's just a very powerful scene. Um, I think what's powerful about it is that it's, it is very much a critique of the American dream. Maybe forward isn't always better. Maybe backwards is. Right? He's going back to a time when he wasn't rich, when he didn't have all these things and yet he was happier. Maybe more isn't always better. Maybe sometimes less is. And yet the tension in this scene is what, what is he trying to do? He's trying to land one more account, make that much more money, get one more success on his belt. So he's going forward and backward at the same time. Nostalgia. So my dissertation was on nostalgia. So here... This will be the one time it's actually useful right now. Um, the word in Greek actually means the painful longing to return. So it is simultaneously a forward and a backward-looking emotion. You're trying to get somewhere, but the where you're trying to get to is actually what was. And, and that is the tension, one of the tensions in the American dream, is, is that um, forward... You know, we pursue happiness, and, and sometimes, actually, it lies behind us. And we're going to see that in spades when we get to the Great Gatsby. Um, that sometimes what, is actually, what we're actually striving for is something we've already lost. But before we do that, uh, next is what happens when the American dream turns into a nightmare. And that's the next book. Not, Not my wife. Right. <laughs> I noticed also that, who, who did the uh, decoration up here? No one wants to, you, Jerry? The library. the library committee. I want to know who picked out the book on the table that is entitled, It's Not My Fault. Huh? <laughs> okay, I noticed that, all right? I blame you. Um, okay, so yeah, I like how Scott said all these books point at the American dream, but actually, after we picked the road as one of them, later we were talking and why did we pick the road? And Scott said, well, I think just because we really liked the book and we wanted to talk about it. But no, but once I started thinking about it, I don't need these yet, Scott. Once um, we started thinking about it, we found a lot of American dreamy stuff in there. Okay, but I'm just curious, how many of you have read The Road or seen the movie? I have not seen the movie. Scott and I love the book too much to see the movie. We were afraid they would wreck it. Okay, not very many. 
Well, have you got a treat in store for you? Because it is a super downer of a book. Um, <laughs> so funny, I, uh, one of my friends uh, read the book, and you know, she said, oh, this book is so depressing. So today, I said, she said, oh, I finished the book today. I said, well, how did you like it by the end? She said, oh, it picked up when the dad died, and then the kid was by himself for three days, and God had to go be with strangers. I thought, oh, I sense sarcasm. <laughs> okay, um, yes, on the surface, and in fact, through and through, it is kind of a downer of a book. Um, the setting is, it is the world, it is America, after some unknown apocalypse. Uh, it could have been nuclear war, it could have been some environmental disaster. They never actually say. I read an interview um, with Cormac McCarthy where he said, he said, you know, I didn't pick. Did you know that the caldera in Yellowstone Lake, whenever it blows up, the last time it blew up, it covered North America in a foot of ash. And so he's like, and it's pulsating right now. So anyways, so it could have been, it could have been the caldera blowing up. We don't know. Um, all we know is that there have been few human survivors. Hardly anyone's made it. When we pick up the story, it's several years onward from this apocalypse. And... Um, there is no natural life apart from um, kind of muted weather phenomena. There's no natural life. The plants are all dead. The animals are all dead. Everything that has to do with kind of the natural world, there's no farming. Everything is dead. Um, and we open with a father and a son alone on the road. I'm going to read you the very opening of the book. And if you read the book, it can be very difficult. Kind of, it's a very short book, but it's kind of difficult the first time through. He, he, I think the only punctuation marks he uses are periods and question marks. There are no quotes. There are no commas. You know, there's nothing. So sometimes in the little dialogues, it's going to be easier to have me read it to you. In the little dialogues, you'll have to count back to figure out who's talking because there's no, there's no markers. Okay, so it opens. When he woke in the woods in the dark... And the cold of the night, he'd reach out to touch the child sleeping beside him. Nights dark beyond darkness and the days more gray, each one, than what had gone before. Like the onset of some cold glaucoma dimming away the world. His hand rose and fell softly with each precious breath. He pushed away the plastic tarpaulin and raised himself in the stinking robes and blankets and looked toward the east for any light, but there was none. In the dream from which he'd wakened, he had wandered in a cave where the child led him by the hand. Their light playing over the wet flowstone walls, like pilgrims in a fable swallowed up and lost among the inward parts of some granitic beast. Deep stone flues where the water dripped and sang, tolling in the silence the minutes of the earth and the hours and the days of it and the years without cease until they stood in a great stone room where lay a black and ancient lake. And on the far shore, a creature that raised its dripping mouth from the rimstone pool and stared into the light with eyes dead white and sightless as the eggs of spiders. It swung its low head over the water as if to take the scent of what it could not see. Crouching there, pale and naked and translucent, its alabaster bones cast up in shadow on the rocks behind it, its bowels, its beating heart, the brain that pulsed in a dull glass bell, 
It swung its head from side to side and then gave out a low moan and turned and lurched away and loped soundlessly into the dark. End of happy dream. With the first gray light, he rose and left the boy sleeping and walked out to the road and squatted and studied the country to the south, barren, silent, godless. He thought the month was October, but he wasn't sure. He hadn't kept a calendar for years. They were moving south. There'd be no surviving another winter here. When it was light enough to use the binoculars, he glassed the valley below, everything paling away into the murk the soft ash blowing in loose swirls over the blacktop. He studied what he could see, the segments of road down there among the dead trees, looking for anything of color, any movement, any trace of standing smoke. He lowered the glasses and pulled down the cotton mask from his face and wiped his nose on the back of his wrist and then glassed the country again. Then he just sat there holding the binoculars and watching the ashen daylight congeal over the land. He knew only that the child was his warrant. He said, if he is not the word of God, God never spoke. When he got back, the boy was still asleep. He pulled the blue plastic tarp off of him and folded it and carried it out to the grocery cart and packed it and came back with their plates and some cornmeal cakes in a plastic bag and a plastic bottle of syrup. He spread the small tarp they used for a table on the ground and laid everything out and he took the pistol from his belt and laid it on the cloth and then he just sat watching the boy sleep. He'd pulled away his mask in the night, and it was buried somewhere in the blankets. He watched the boy, and he looked out through the trees toward the road. This was not a safe place. They could be seen from the road. Now it was day. The boy turned in the blankets. Then he opened his eyes. Hi, Papa, he said. I'm right here. I know. An hour later, they were on the road. He pushed the cart, and both he and the boy carried knapsacks. In the knapsacks were essential things, in case they had to abandon the cart and make a run for it. Clamped to the handle of the cart was a chrome motorcycle mirror that he used to watch the road behind him. He shifted the pack higher on his shoulders and looked out over the wasted country. The road was empty. Below, in the little valley, the still gray serpentine of a river, motionless and precise. Along the shore, a burden of dead reeds. Are you okay? He said. The boy nodded. Then they set out along the blacktop in the gunmetal light, shuffling through the ash, each the other's world entire. Okay, so, yay, Perky! Um, okay, so I'm going to be reading more passages, but everything that we have already talked about is right in that opening, in some form or another. I'm going to focus on three of them, though they will, the three that Scott talked about, and then I'm going to throw in the fourth. So the three I'm going to talk about are, is, the one is the idea of movement, the, the whole take on the frontier experience, what Scott was talking about, always pressing forward, moving, 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 going west, moving. Um, the second one is um, when Scott talked about economic prosperity. I call it more, bigger, better. And then the third is the idea of the redeemer nation. I want to talk about all those three. So let's start with movement. You know, I think about that Southwest Airlines ad, you are now free to move about the country, right? So for all of American history, and in American literature especially, we go west, we go west, right? We always go west, and that's better, and it was this rallying cry, and Americans went after the Civil War, they were building the railroads, and they gave out free land grants, come settle, come settle, come settle, and it's wonderful, and it's fertile, and you can practice this thing called dry farming, and you're going to love it. And people went out, people like Laura Ingalls Wilder and her family, and if you've read The Long Winter, you know just what a great time they had with that dry farming and that weather. 
Um, so they went, and this was the promise, right? It's going to go, and it's going to be fertile, and you're going to be prosperous, and it's free. You just live on that land for a few years, and it's yours, free. Um, and this continued in th into the 20th century. I just read a book about uh, the opening of eastern Montana. Same thing. This is 20th century now. Free land grants. And, and oh, that didn't work out either. Strange. There's a reason it was called the Great American Desert. So, um, so in American literature, going west always means progress, adventure, better life, prosperity. I was going to read you uh, the opening of Mark Twain's Roughing It. Um, in Roughing It, which is a very fun book to read, um, Nan, maybe you read it. I saw Nan. Where did Nan? Ah, nodding. Yes. Okay. His brother gets a job as the something or other secretary of Nevada territory. And so Mark Twain, or his alter ego in this book, he hears about this. And he says, um, he says, he was going to travel. I never had been away from home, and that word travel had a seductive charm for me. Pretty soon, he would be hundreds and hundreds of miles away on the great plains and deserts and among the mountains of the far west, and would see buffaloes and Indians and prairie dogs and antelopes and have all kinds of adventures and maybe get hanged or scalped and have ever such a fine time and write home and tell us all about it and be a hero. And he would see the gold mines and the silver mines and maybe go about a an afternoon when his work was done and pick up two or three pailfuls of shining slugs and nuggets of gold and silver on the hillside. And by and by, he would become very rich and return home by sea, and he'd be able to talk as calmly about San Francisco and the ocean and the isthmus of Panama as if it were nothing of any consequence to have seen those marvels face to face. What I suffered in contemplating his happiness, pen cannot describe. And so, when he offered me, in cold blood, the sublime position of private secretary under him, it appeared to me that the heavens and the earth passed away, and the firmament was rolled together as a scroll. I had nothing more to desire. My contentment was complete. So, there it is. You know, that was what the West meant. Even think about uh, Grapes of Wrath, which the road in many ways is very similar to Grapes of Wrath. Um, in Grapes of Wrath, Tom Joad gets out of jail, and he, um, this part isn't similar, he gets out of jail and he, he goes to find his family and finds they, they had to give up the farm because they couldn't make payments. It's the Depression. And they are all thinking of getting in the car and going to California. And why? Because someone's been passing out these handbills, talking about, oh, come to California, come pick peas, come pick oranges. It's just like food everywhere. You're going to love it. And so they're going. In Grapes of Wrath, they are going. In the road, we also have movement. The father and son are quintessential Americans because they are hitting the road, right? Look at the title, The Road. They are hitting the road. They are moving. They have a destination in mind where they think life will be better, right? But instead of this westward movement toward hope and progress and life is going to get better, we're going to have freedom and prosperity, they are going south. They are going south and they are going east. Um, south, they say specifically, right? It's too cold. And then east, we learn kind of by implication. If you do a search like I did today on directions that they go, east is mentioned a whole lot. And west is only mentioned when they're looking to see if the sun is set or if they say east to west, right? It's always east. They are going south and east. So symbolically speaking, we have, instead of progress, advancement, wonderful prosperity, we have regression and we have retreat and defeat. If you've got to go south and east, you have failed, right? 
Um, and no offense if you're from Santa Fe or something like that. But, um, but in American lit literature, it is a failure, okay? Unless you were coming from the East Coast and ended up in Santa Fe, that's okay. Um, okay, so we have retreat and defeat. And just like in Grapes of Wrath, it is this, it is this possibly false hope that is leading them onward, right? Um, will the coast really be any better? Um, will it be any warmer? Will there be anything to eat there? People didn't do a lot of farming on the coast. I mean, what are we going to find there? And indeed, throughout the novel, the description of their surroundings, of the natural world, it is very uniform, start to finish. A lot of people, they complain, like, how many times is he going to talk about the ash, the ash, the ash? Because no matter where they go, uh, it's always gray, they can hardly tell if the sun is up or down. The ash is always falling. Years later, this ash is still falling. Um, it is always cold, and it is usually raining. The only time it's not raining is when it's actually snowing. So it's always horrible. It doesn't matter if they're in a valley. It doesn't matter if they're crossing the mountain pass or when they finally reach the coast. It's, the description is always the same. So their hope is kind of, um, kind of a false one. So instead of this movement on a mission... You know, the road gives us movement for movement's sake. Like Don having his affairs. Movement for movement's sake. Because in the road especially, if you do not keep moving, you will be dead, right? Um, there's no food. You have to scavenge for food. If you, if you plump down and decide, I like this place of ash and gray. I'm just going to live here. You die because there's nothing to eat. You've got to keep looking for food. You have to keep moving for moving's sake because if you stop on the road, if somebody catches up to you, you die. They're going to kill you. Um, and so, uh, oh, it's terrible. When you read the book, anytime they catch up to somebody on the road or somebody catches up to them, you just kind of clutch up and you think, uh-oh, this isn't going to be good. Somebody's going to get... Somebody's going to die, and sure enough, usually somebody is dying. So um, you've got to keep moving, because otherwise you're going to be dead. So the dream of movement is still there. The American dream lives on, but it has shrunk. Now it's become not moved to be prosperous, moved to succeed. It's moved to stay alive, right? It's moved because you hope it'll be better somewhere else. You've got kind of doubts, but you don't want to talk about them, but you hope. Um, it's moved backwards, south and east, moved backwards geographically because you cannot go backwards in time. You cannot go backwards to that other world that is lost to you. Okay. That's theme number one. Theme number two is the prosperity, right? The more, bigger, better. Um, you know, and this one ties to the whole movement thing because that is how, traditionally in history, how they have lured Americans westward is the more, big, more bigger, better. Um, doing some interesting reading for this, the size of the American house has doubled since the 1950s. It has doubled. Our families, you know, have not doubled, but the size of the house has doubled. Um, nowadays, we spend less than 10% of our disposable income on food. That is a record low in history, which leaves us more to spend on more, bigger, better. Um, we, we have created needs. Thank you, Don Draper. We have created needs that we didn't know we had. And um, we need the latest, the biggest, the newest, the fastest. We've become super consumers. And instead of being satisfied with the things we consume, we just get hungrier and hungrier. Um, and historically, what made more, bigger, better possible in America 
was our wealth of natural resources, right? We had land, 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 land going begging, right? We had land, we had coal, we still have coal. We have timber, we had wildlife. We have this under the great American desert, which they renamed the Great Plains, a nice advertising job. There was an aquifer, there still is, it's heavily depleted, but there's an aquifer making ir irrigation possible. Um, we have these rivers that provide power and wildlife and um, drinking water. Uh, we have oil, we have natural gas, we have mineral and metal deposits. We are a very rich nation. And this natural wealth has kind of subsidized our material wealth. We not only have enough, we have more than enough. We not only have more than enough, we, we have so much we can't keep up. We have waste. We throw away more than some companies have, right? I was reading a book uh, by a journalist named Jonathan Bloom. His book was uh, another happy sounding title. It was called American Wasteland, but he meant trash. And he said every single day, quote, America wastes enough food to fill the Rose Bowl. Yes, that Rose Bowl, the 90,000-seat football stadium in Pasadena, California. And so he said that is food that gets tossed daily, accumulated in our food chain, from the produce that's left in the field because it's not quite right or it's too expensive to harvest, um, to the stuff that gets rejected in processing or in distribution or in the grocery stores because it's not quite right or it's been manhandled or it's close to the sell-by date. You know, this includes the food that is um, the, at the end of the shift that's thrown away in the, the school cafeterias, in the restaurants, the buffets, the cruise ships, and, and it also includes the food that is right now sitting in our refrigerators, liquefying in the bottom of the crisper drawer, or, or growing little furry things because it's been pushed to the back by new, more, bigger, better food that came more recently. <laughs> so where food is concerned, just food, right? We have such more, bigger, better that we can't keep up and we have to throw it away. So in the road, the more, bigger, better gets turned inside out. It gets turned upside down. You know, now it's less, little, nothing, right? So much of this book, they are looking for food. They are starving. They're literally, they are star Ooh. Everybody plug your ears. Okay, they are starving. Um, they're scavenging. It has been years since the apocalypse. It's been years since all that natural abundance was wiped out. And ever since the few survivors have been, you know, combing the Walmarts and the Costcos and the, the pantries and anything that, was, uh, that had food, right? But it's all been combed over now. And uh, now it, they're like vultures and they, they have to pick over the corpse in search of things to eat. And it's interesting that, that the father and the son, they go around the country with a shopping cart. You know, it's a shopping cart they are pushing all over the country, looking for part of that American abundance that they had. I'm going to read you. Read you. Okay. They are looking for food, as usual. They, much of the book. The roadside hedges were gone to rows of black and twisted brambles. No sign of life. He left the boy standing in the road, holding the pistol, while he climbed an old set of limestone, limestone steps and walked down the porch of the farmhouse, shading his eyes and peering in the windows. He let himself in through the kitchen. Trash in the floor, old newsprint, china in a break front, cups hanging from their hooks. He went down the hallway and stood in the door to the parlor. There was an antique pump organ in the corner, a television set, cheap stuffed furniture together with an old handmade cherry wood chiffer robe. 
He climbed the stairs and walked through the bedrooms, everything covered with ash, a child's room with a stuffed dog on the windowsill looking out at the garden. He went through the closets. He stripped back the beds and came away with two good woolen blankets and went back down the stairs. In the pantry were three jars of home canned tomatoes. He blew the dust from the lids and studied them. Someone before him had not trusted them, and in the end, neither did he. And he walked out with the blankets over his shoulder, and they set off down the road again. On the outskirts of the city, they came to a supermarket. A few old cars in the trash-strewn parking lot. They left the cart in the lot and walked the littered aisles. In the produce section in the bottom of the bins, they found a few ancient runner beans and what looked to have once been apricots, long dried to wrinkled effigies of themselves. The boy followed behind. They pushed out through the rear door. In the alleyway behind the store, a few shopping carts, all badly rusted. They went back through the store again, looking for another cart, but there were none. By the door were two soft drink machines that had been tilted over onto the floor and pried open with a crowbar. Coins everywhere in the ash, right? Nobody wants the money now. He sat and ran his hand around in the works of the gutted machines, and in the second one, it closed over a cold metal cylinder. He withdrew his hand slowly and sat looking at a Coca-Cola. What is it, Papa? It's a treat for you. What is it? Here, sit down. He slipped the boy's knapsack straps loose and set the pack on the floor behind him, and he put his thumbnail under the aluminum clip on the top of the can and opened it. He leaned his nose to the slight fizz coming from the can and then handed it to the boy. Go ahead, he said. The boy took the can. It's bubbly, he said. Go ahead. He looked at his father and then tilted the can and drank. He sat there thinking about it. It's really good, he said. Yes, it is. You have some, Papa. I want you to drink it. You have some. He took the can and sipped it and handed it back. You drink it, he said. Let's just sit here. It's because I won't ever get to drink another one, isn't it? Ever's a long time. Okay, the boy said. All right, so we have this sad little grocery store, and then the Coke is it, you know? There it still is. Um, so Jonathan Bloom, he talks about working in a grocery store and talks about how um, the abundance thing, you had to pile up the produce at the end of the day because you never want it to look like it's empty, like it's running out, like it's just a few runner beans and some apricots, right? Um, and any fruits or vegetables that look kind of, eh, kind of like people have been squeezing them too much, wanting to know if they were ripe, they got thrown away, right? And because people don't want to buy the last of anything, you have to keep the bakery goods out, you have to keep the deli, the hot foods, everything stocked to bursting till the end of the day, and then you have to throw it away because it's been sitting out for four hours. So in the road, that abundance is no longer imaginable. The boy, he has no memory of a world like that. And just a sense that his dad is kind of like this space alien. You know, he's come from this alternate universe where everything was different. And the father wants to give his son glimpses of the other lost world. The dad is always having these dreams. Scott, am I going too long? Wrap it up? I don't know. Okay. The dad is always having these dreams. And um, he slept little and he slept poorly. He dreamt of walking in a flowering wood where birds flew before them. He and the child and the sky was aching blue, but he was learning now to wake himself from just such siren worlds, lying there in the dark with the uncanny taste of a peach from some phantom orchard fading in his mouth. He thought if he lived long enough, the world at last would all be lost, that old world. Like the dying world the newly blind inhabit, all of it slowly fading from memory. 
So that, that abundant world is gone. And he says, pretty soon, even the memories of that abundant world will be gone when he is gone because his son does not understand, right? Okay, and when there's nothing left to consume from the lost world, then the consumption turns inward. This book is not for the faint of heart. The other survivors have begun to consume each other. Um, and the most horrific scenes in the book, basically anytime you run into other people on the road, you might want to skim because it's always horrific when they run into other people. Um, and so the father and son, if they are caught on the road, the danger is that they will be cannibalized by these troops of marauders. They have a pistol with two bullets, right? And it's for them that if they are caught, they can kill themselves before they are eaten. Um, so just as there's still this American dream of movement and the American dream of more, bigger, better um, is hanging on just like that, even if it's just kind of as a negative of itself. Um, these memories of a siren world where there are peaches and abundance and more food than you knew what to do with. You know, food and food. So much food that you could throw away a whole rose bowl worth of food every day and you didn't even notice. Yeah. So the last American dream theme I want to talk about is what Scott called the Redeemer Nation. Um, that, too, is still there on the road, and not even in the negative sense, like the more, bigger, better was there, right? The road is a redemption story, even if all the father and the son have to redeem now is each other. Uh, you remember that line from the opening where he said, he knew only that the child was his warrant. He said, if he is not the word of God, God never spoke, right? McCarthy is echoing the opening of the Gospel of John where he says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, right? This boy symbolizes for his dad, he is his last creative act, and he is the only reason he goes on living. The boy's mom, you may wonder what happened to her, she couldn't take it, and she just killed herself because she did not want to be in this world, and so, but the dad chose to go on living for this boy's sake. Um, and it's interesting, he often talks about his son in religious terms and with religious imagery. Um, at one point, uh, they meet someone on the road with predictable results, and this guy tries to grab the boy, and the dad has to shoot him, has to take one of those precious bullets that was meant for the dad and has to shoot this guy. And then he has to clean the brain. He talks about washing the brains out of the boy's hair. And he's drying the boy's hair before the fire, and he thinks, all of this like some ancient anointing. So be it. Evoke the forms. When you've where you've nothing else, construct ceremonies out of the air and breathe upon them. So caring for this boy becomes this act of worship, right? It's the only place where he can feel any kind of spirituality left. It's all that's left. And same thing. He, he's talking about his boy's golden hair, and he says, golden chalice, good to house a god. And then later he talks about the boy playing this little flute, and it's like... Um, the last music on earth called up from out of the ashes of its ruin. So everything, everything takes on this sort of spiritual resonance. And for this boy, the father will sacrifice himself. The boy is also what keeps his father human. Um, they keep each other from becoming what they call the bad guys. And you can probably guess who the bad guys are. They're the people who you meet on the road who eat you. Um, I'm going to read to you a passage. I'm almost done, Scott, so never fear. Okay. Oh, yeah? Okay. All right. So they're on the road, amazingly. They're on the road. They left the pike and took a narrow road through the country and came at last upon a bridge and a dry creek, and they crawled down the bank and huddled underneath. Can we have a fire? The boy said. 
We don't have a lighter. The boy looked away. I'm sorry. I dropped it. I didn't want to tell you. That's okay. I'll find us some flint. I've been looking, and we've still got the little bottle of gasoline. Okay. Are you very cold? I'm okay. The boy lay with his head in the man's lap. After a while, he said, They're going to kill those people, aren't they? They ran into some people earlier. Yes. Why do they have to do that? I don't know. Are they going to eat them? I don't know. They're going to eat them, aren't they? Yes. And we couldn't help them because then they'd eat us too? Yes. And that's why we couldn't help them? Yes. Okay. They passed through town, is that? Yes. They passed through towns that warned people away with messages scrawled on the billboards. The billboards had been whited out with thin coats of paint in order to write on them, and through the paint could be seen a pale palimpsest of advertisements for goods which no longer existed. The eyes of Dr. What's his name. They sat by the side of the road and ate the last of the apples. What is it? The man said. Nothing. We'll find something to eat. We always do. The boy didn't answer. The man watched him. That's not it, is it? It's okay. Tell me. The boy looked away down the road. I want you to tell me. It's okay. He shook his head. Look at me, the man said. He turned and looked. He looked like he'd been crying. Just tell me. We wouldn't ever eat anybody, would we? No, of course not. Even if we were starving? We're starving now. You said we weren't. I said we weren't dying. I didn't say we weren't starving. But we wouldn't. No, we wouldn't. No matter what. No, no matter what. Because we're the good guys. Yes. And we're carrying the fire. And we're carrying the fire. Yes. Okay. So it's this whole idea. They have this, um, the dad lost the, they've lost their literal fire, right? He lost the lighter when they were running away from these people. And, but they're also in danger of losing their, their um, symbolic fire, right? They call about, talk about carrying the fire, carrying this idea, and, and they never really talk about what it is. But, you know, you kind of get the sense that it's, it's love. It's the love they have for each other. It's this kind of human spirit. It's this spirit of goodness. It's this thing that they are in grave danger of losing every single day they are on the road. And the father can nurture the fire for the boy's sake, but just barely, right? It takes a lot of work. He almost can't do it. Each time it's a struggle. But the child redeems the father because he actually, he's so young, he has enough of this fire left, enough for not just him, but for his father and for the greater world as well. There's a point where they run across, the dad, the dad, he's there to save his son. He is not there to save anybody else. And he's very clear about that. But the son still has this desire to be a redeemer to the greater world. So here, the boy was sitting on the steps when he saw something move at the rear of the house across the road. A face was looking at him. A boy about his age, wrapped in an outsized wool coat with the sleeves turned back. He stood up. He ran across the road and up the drive. No one there. He looked toward the house, and then he ran to the bottom of the yard through the dead weeds to a still black creek. Come back, he called. I won't hurt you. He was standing there crying when his father came sprinting across the road and seized him by the arm. What are you doing? He hissed. What are you doing? There's a little boy, Papa. There's a little boy. There's no little boy. What are you doing? Yes, there is. I saw him. I told you to stay put. Didn't I tell you? Now we've got to go. Come on. I just wanted to see him, Papa. I just wanted to see him. The man took him by the arm, and they went back up through the yard. The boy would not stop crying, and he would not stop looking back. Come on, the man said. We've got to go. I want to see him, Papa. There's no one to see. Do you want to die? Is that what you want? I don't care, the boy said, sobbing. I don't care. The man stopped. 
He stopped and squatted and held him. I'm sorry, he said. Don't say that. You mustn't say that. Later they meet an older dying person on the road, and they've got hardly any food, and the boy wants to share a can of peaches with him, and the dad is like, no way, and they do it. And that is the boy redeeming his father and the world at large. Um, Okay, so the boy redeems his father by forcing him always to remember his humanity and giving him purpose in life. The father redeems his son by protecting him and sacrificing for him. So the redemption story in the road is still the idea of the redeemer nation, but suddenly it is made personal, right? It's that individual in society. It's shrunk down. Forget saving the world. We can't save the world, but maybe we can save each other, right, as individuals. Um, You know, part of the American dream is believing at heart that we are the good guys, right? We're not the bad guys. We're the good guys. And we could not go on if we didn't believe that. We might go through periods of self-doubt. You know, we might criticize ourselves ruthlessly. Oh, you know, oh, the Native Americans. Oh, interning the Japanese. But part of being American is seeing yourself at bottom as one of the good guys, like the father and the son, seeing yourself as one of the redeemed. So, okay. On that heavy note, now we're going to lighten your load by passing the offering plates. Yeah, okay. Before you do that, um, can you just hang on for just one second with the offering plates? Because I'm going to let you guys stand up and uh, and take a 30-second break before we pass that out. And then we'll go on to The Great Gatsby, which after that will seem like a comedy. So take 30 seconds and then sit back down. Okay, go ahead and have a seat, and we will uh, wrap up with The Great Gatsby. Now, how many of you have read The Great Gatsby? I'm assuming almost all of you. Okay, so um, I will do some plot summary just in case it's been a long, long time since you read The Great Gatsby. Uh, As you know, it takes place in the 1920s. Uh, and it's very similar to Mad Men in that it, it's set at the height, at one of those heights of American prosperity, the Roaring Twenties, after we had just won a world war. And uh, it's traditionally read as a book that is a critique of the American dream, as well as a chronicling of the decline of the American dream, all of which I think is true. But I'm also going to argue against most of the critics um, that I think it also shows some of the promise and the possibility of the American dream. You know, one of the things, and Christina just alluded to this, you know, believing that you're one of the good guys, I think Fitzgerald still believes that America is one of the good guys. And I would say, you know, we are self-critical, and rightly so, of our racial policies in the past and of uh, of some of our colonial past. Uh, but even the fact that we can self-critique so harshly in a way that no other culture can uh, comes out of the American dream, right? We so believe, so want to be the good guys that we will harshly critique ourselves when we're not. 
And so I think that's part of what Fitzgerald is doing, that he so believes we are the good guys, wants to be the good guys, that he will harshly critique when we are not, which he believes happens in the Roaring Twenties. The narrator, as you know, is Nick Carraway, who comes from the East Coast, or comes from the Midwest to go to the East Coast to make his fortune on Wall Street. So there you have that regressive movement as in the road, right? West is always prosperity, but Nick and Gatsby both come from the Midwest and, and, and go East. So it's, it's that regressive backward moment, uh, uh, movement. And Nick is much, very much going to characterize that as failure. Um, and geography is a major part of this book, and I'll talk about that in a minute. Fitzgerald does a lot with East and West, East and West. Nick spends the summer hanging out with Tom Buchanan and Daisy Buchanan, um, Tom's wife, and Gatsby and Jordan Baker, who becomes kind of his girlfriend. Gatsby, they, the, the book mostly refers to him as Gatsby, not by a first name. There's a couple places, but just Gatsby. And he's sort of, some, he's, he is the American dream in so many, in, incarnate and embodied. And he's fabulously wealthy, as you know. He lives in a huge mansion, throws elaborate parties. But nobody quite knows how he got rich. And there's all these funny passages. I'm not going to read them all. But all these passages where people speculate. How, you know, maybe he was a German spy. Or I bet he killed someone. Or, you know, all this speculation. Gatsby is sort of a blank screen upon which everyone can project their idea of what success looks like. Including, and Gatsby, in fact, is a blank screen for himself to project his own images of success. There's one scene, I'm not going to read it. It's a very famous scene where Jordan and uh, 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 Nick are wandering through Gatsby's mansion during one of his parties. And they go into the library. And there's a man there who says, look at this library. It's all mahogany and, you know, mimicking. And it says mimicking an old library from an ancient castle. So going back to the European aristocracy, right? And he says, all these books are real, and look, and look. But he knew when to stop. He didn't cut the pages. So that's back when books were published with the pages uncut, and you had to cut them as you read them. So here's this beautiful library filled with all these sophisticated books. Gatsby hasn't read a one of them. Right? And that's, that's so uh, indicative of, of, of what of Fitzgerald's critique of the American dream, that it has become nothing but show. It's all for show. It's all to impress other people. There's no, there's no substance to it anymore. There's no depth to it anymore. It's all a facade. And Gatsby's whole life is about projecting an image on this blank screen to impress the people around him. And that, that is where Fitzgerald is most heartbroken about the promise of the American dream. At its best, the American dream is aspirational and inspirational. It motivates us not just to have more, more stuff, but to be more, to become all that we could be. But in Gatsby, it's nothing but conspicuous consumption, nothing but to impress other people. It's an individual, and you see the themes, all the themes are there, the movement, you know, the individual trying to make his way in, 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 in the, into the community, in the corporate, um, trying to carve an identity, identity for himself. And Gatsby is the quintessential identity master and maker. Um, he creates an identity for himself, whole cloth out of nothing. This is Gatsby telling Gatsby's version of Gatsby's story to Nick, which isn't going to be true, but this is Gatsby talking. So he kind of talks about growing up and all of that, and, and then he says, I tell you God's truth. His right hand suddenly ordered divine retribution to stand by. So swearing an oath, right? 
I am the son of some wealthy people in the Middle West, all dead now. I was brought up in America but educated at Oxford because all of my ancestors have been educated there for many years. It's a family tradition. He looked at me sideways. And I knew why Jordan Baker had believed he was lying. He hurried the phrase educated at Oxford or swallowed it or choked on it as though it had bothered him before. And with this doubt, his whole statement fell to pieces and I wondered if there wasn't something a little sinister about him after all. What part of the Midwest are you from, I inquired, I inquired casually. San Francisco. <laughs> Which just shows the whole hollowness of his story, right? Right? I see, said Nick. My family all died and I came into a good deal of money. His voice was solemn as if the memory of that sudden extinction of a clan still haunted him. For a moment I suspected he was pulling my leg, but a glance at him convinced me otherwise. After that, I lived with a young Raja in all the capitals of Europe, Paris, Venice, Rome, collecting jewels, chiefly rubies, hunting big game, painting a little, things for myself only, and trying to forget something very sad that had happened to me long ago. With an effort, I managed to restrain my laughter. The very phrases were, wor were worn so threadbare they evoked no image except that of a turbaned character looking sawdust at every pore as he pursued a tiger through the Bois de Boulogne. That his whole story is completely unbelievable. He's trying to create this image of himself as old money, aristocracy, but, you know, as Nick says, the very phrases were so threadbare, so cliche, that you just can't even believe him. Later in this passage, Nick says, listening to him tell his story was like skimming hastily through a dozen magazines. You know, it's just all surface image. Gatsby's real story is quite different. So I'm going to have to beg your forgiveness. I have this on Kindle, so I can't just flip the page. I'm never going to do this again. Those of you who don't like technology in Kindle are... Okay, there. I have to type in the location, and you don't need to know. Anyway, this is Gatsby's real story. James Gatz, that was really, or at least legally, his name. He changed it at the age of 17, and at the specific moment that witnessed the beginning of his career when he saw Dan, Dan Cody's yacht drop anchor over the most insidious flat on Lake Superior. It was James Gatz who had been loafing along the beach that afternoon in a torn green jersey and a pair of canvas pants, but it was already Jay Gatsby who borrowed a rowboat, pulled out to the Tulami, and informed Cody that a wind might catch him and break him up in half an hour. I suppose he'd had that name ready for a long, long time, even then. His parents were nothing but shiftless and unsuccessful farm people. His imagination had never really accepted them as his parents at all. The truth was that Jay Gatsby of West Egg, Long Island, sprang from his platonic conception of himself. He was a son of God, a phrase which, if it means anything, means just that, and he must be about his father's business, the service of a vast, vulgar, and meretricious beauty. So he invented just the sort of Jay Gatsby that a 17-year-old boy would be likely to invent, and to this conception he was faithful to the end. He is not, self, he is not a self-made man, right? Like, the, like the, 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 the typical American dream, the self-made man. He's not a self-made man. He's a self-invented man. And that's a very different thing. And it's a very hollow thing. And it's the American dream evacuated of all of its beauty and all of its meaning. The beauty of the American dream, the rags to riches, right, the immigrant story really is that it calls out the best of you to be able to achieve a certain level of economic prosperity. You have to have a certain amount of spiritual strength and moral character and fiber and backbone and strength. Jay Gatsby simply invents it whole cloth, right? He's not a self-made man. He's a self 
invented man. He is exactly like Don Draper, right? The cliche. In America, you can be anybody. Literally. Just make it up, and you can be that. He's a fiction. He's nothing but self-fashioning. As the story goes on, you discover he got rich through working with various mafia types, one guy named Meyer Wolfsheim, which is just this wonderful conglomeration of ethnicities, right? I mean, you don't quite know. You think he's maybe Jewish and maybe German, and it's just, again, sort of the American dream, all kind of the melting pot, all in Meyer. Right? And he's described in very disgusting terms. With Anyway. Um, he probably, Gatsby probably got rich through bootlegging, although he says the way he did it was by owning drugstores. And the reason he did it all was for Daisy. He met her when he was in the service, when he was a young man, fell in love, but he decided he wasn't wealthy enough for her. At no point does she actually say to him, you're not wealthy enough for me, because he's pretending to her that he is. He himself decides he doesn't live up to snuff. So he decides after World War I to go out and make money any way he can, probably by bootlegging. But as he's doing that, Daisy goes off and marries Tom Buchanan. The rest of the novel is Gatsby trying to impress Daisy with all of his wealth, with all of his friends, so that she will go back to him, leave Tom and go back to him. Daisy becomes his American dream. Daisy is the American dream incarnate for him, symbolized by the green light at the end of her dock. You've all read the book, so you kind of know. I mean, you, if you read it in high school, the green light at the end of the dock and the eyes of Dr. T.J. Eckelberg, right? I mean, you probably got that drummed into your head. Um, I'm not going to talk about the eyes of T.J. Eckelberg, so that's great Gatsby blasphemy. Anyway, although it is advertising, which is interesting. Gatsby buys the mansion he buys because it's across the bay from Daisy's house. Daisy has a green light at the end of her dock, and Gatsby is always looking at it. That's his aspiration. She becomes his American dream, and she's not worth it. And that's what the whole novel is sort of saying. If she's the American dream, she's not worth it. The American dream, maybe, isn't even worth it because it's so hollowed out. It's so vacuous. Hang on while I move to the next one. This is uh, 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 Nick's first uh, meeting with Daisy and Jordan. He walks into their house, and there they are (coughs) laying on this giant divan. How do you say that? Divan? Yeah, whatever. That thing. Couch. Um, Sofa, as we say in eastern Washington. All right. The only completely stationary object in the room was an enormous couch on which two young women were buoyed up as though upon anchored balloons. I just kind of love that image, right? They were both in white, and their dresses were rippling and fluttering as if they had just been blown back in, a, back in after a short flight around the house. The younger of the, of the two was a stranger to me. She was extended full length at the end of her couch, at, the end, at, the end of the, at her end of the couch, completely motionless, and with her chin raised a little, as if she were balancing something on it which was quite likely to fall off. If she saw me out of the corner of her eye, she gave no hint of it. Indeed, I was almost surprised into murmuring an apology for having disturbed her by coming in. The other girl, Daisy, made an attempt to rise. She leaned slightly forward with a conscientious expression. Then she laughed an absurd, charming little laugh, and I laughed too, and she came forward toward me into the room and said, I'm paralyzed with happiness. Yuck. Right, like, I mean, I remember in high school reading that and go, why does he like her? <laughs> Lounging around, useless. But that, that phrase, you know, I mean, so much of this book is about the idleness and the boredom of the rich. 
Those who have attained the American dream, just like Don Draper, just like Betty Draper, right? Once you have it all and so much of it, what do you do with it? And you just get bored. And this phrase, I'm paralyzed with happiness, kind of sums up American culture. Think about how profound that line is. We are paralyzed with happiness. We have everything and so much of it we can't move. Everything and so much of it we're just, we're just stuck, right? So that's back to Betty Draper on the couch, in the psychiatrist's office. You know, I'm trying to be thankful, but I can't. Affluence leads to boredom. And just like Don Draper has affairs, Daisy has an affair with Gatsby. Emotional, but it's an affair. And Tom has a mistress named Myrtle. They're all having affairs. They're bored. It's just hollowed out. This is captured brilliantly in the party scenes, and I'm not going to read them, but the party scenes where Fitzgerald describes mounds upon mounds upon mounds of food and sometimes two or three or four orchestras and drunk people swimming in the swimming pools and vomiting all over the place, and he makes the excess repulsive. He just makes it sound so horrible. These, these, and these horrible people at parties. And you know, every person you meet at one of Gatsby's parties, they're just sort of horrible. There's, there's one guy, Mr. McKee, and he's kind of nondescript, but, um, but Fitzgerald goes on to say, but his wife, however, was shrill, languid, handsome, and horrible. What a line, right? Shrill, languid, handsome, and horrible, right? But that kind of sums up the people in Gatsby's world. Rich, bored, restless, useless, shrill, languid, handsome, and horrible. What Fit, Fitzgerald wants to say here is that when the American dream becomes materialized, becomes incarnate, whether that's in a person or whether that's in things like houses and cars. And if it is shrunk down to something that is material or incarnate, it becomes insipid. At one point, Nick is at yet another party that he's now, he's bored. At first, the party's mesmerized him, but now he's just bored with all the excess and all the drunk, obnoxious people. And he says, what amazed me back then turns septic on the air now. Fitzgerald just has this way with phrases turns septic on the air. Once the American dream becomes incarnate, whether it's in a person like Daisy or whether it's about cars and houses, once it shrinks down to that material world, it becomes insipid. It goes septic. And what he wants to say is the excess of the 20s has robbed the American dream of its spiritual potential, its moral potential, and it's just turned septic, right? The whole thing, the American dream is at its best when it's about a new society, when it's about a political ethos about egalitarianism, when it's about making us better moral people. So the whole thing starts to unravel. Uh, It goes from bad to worse. Um, Gatsby is trying to get reunited with Daisy. He wants her to see his giant house. So Nick arranges that, uh, and Gatsby and Daisy spend the afternoon together, right? And at the end of that, Nick says, I don't even think in this moment Daisy could live up to all of his dreams because he'd put so much into her, right? He'd put so much in five years of getting rich to try to woo her away from Tom so that he could, he could have her. And he says, I don't think even he could, she can't live up to it, right? And that's the problem if you invest the American dream in things as small and insipid and shallow as a person, especially a shallow person like Daisy, or things, cars, parties, that sort of thing. It gets worse. Daisy and Tom attend one of his parties, but Daisy doesn't have a good time. And Gatsby is worried about that, and he's talking to Nick about that at location 1415. You'll be happy to know. He says to, Gatsby says to Nick, I don't think she liked it, the party. Nick says, of course she did. She didn't like it, he insisted. She didn't have a good time. He was silent, and I guessed at his unutterable depression. 
mean, he's done all of this. The house, the parties, the cars, just to get Daisy impressed with him. She's become the world to him, right? And he said, I feel far away from her. It's hard to make her understand. You mean about the dance? The dance. He dismissed all the dances he had given with a snap of his fingers. Old sport, the dance is unimportant. His use of the phrase old sport throughout the thing, it just shows how um, phony he is because he can't ever quite say it right. And Tom later calls him on it and says, what's this old sport stuff? That's not, you know, you're a farm boy from the Midwest. Cut it out. You didn't go to Oxford, right? Uh, Gatsby wanted nothing less of Daisy than that she should go to Tom right now and say, I never loved you. After she had obliterated four years of marriage with that one sentence, they could then decide upon the more practical measures to be taken. One of them was that after she was free, they were to go back to Louisville and be married from her house just as if it were five years ago. And she doesn't understand, he said. She used to be able to understand. We'd sit for hours. He broke off and began to walk up and down the desolate path of fruit rinds and discarded favors and crushed flowers. So kind of the, the dregs of his excess. I wouldn't ask too much of her, I ventured. You can't repeat the past. Can't repeat the past, he cried incredulously. Why, of course you can. He looked around him wildly as if the past were lurking here in the shadow of his house, just out of the reach of his hands. I'm going to fix everything just the way it was before, he said, nodding determinedly, she will see. He talked a lot about the past, and I gathered that he wanted to recover something, some ideal of himself, perhaps, that had, gone, that had gone into loving Daisy. His life had been confused and disordered since then, but if he could once return to a certain starting place and go over it all slowly, he could find out what that thing was. So that's the scene with the carousel projector, right? Moving forward, moving forward, but actually the thing that's going to make you happy was back there. Right? He's trying to reclaim something from the past when he first met Daisy when they were first young, but it's gone. Just like for Fitzgerald, the whole American dream is gone. Right? His whole life has been about getting rich to impress her, and, and he can't get her to come back. His future lies behind him. He, and this fits in with the whole geography thing, right? Nick's future is east, but that's the past. The west is the future, right? There's all this movement throughout the Great Gatsby of moving, trying to move forward, but actually what you're trying to get to is behind you, right? Well, the whole thing comes apart when Tom and... Oh, we're doing good. When uh, Tom and Daisy and Nick and Jordan and Gatsby all go into New York for a big, horrendous afternoon together. It's like the worst. I mean, if you read through the scene, it's like the worst afternoon you would ever want to spend. They fight, they bicker. Finally, it all blows up, and Tom tells Daisy that Gatsby did not go to Oxford. He isn't from old money, that he's a poor boy who made his money through bootlegging. Okay, this is the height of hypocrisy. What fuels their fun is alcohol. Alcohol is all throughout this book, right? And Tom, as he's saying he was a bootlegger, is pulling out a flask of whiskey to pour for his friends, right? So here's this hypocrisy that these guys are using the product that Gatsby illegally made in the 20s to have fun, yet he can't be part of them, right? It shows that Gatsby can try and try. This is, again, the critique. The American dream maybe isn't as open as we think it is. Gatsby can try and try and try to climb the social ladder, but he'll never be one of them. He'll never be one of the old money. He'll never be one of the crowd. Oh, they'll use his big house. They'll love to go to his parties. He can amuse them. He can supply their booze, but he's never going to be one of them. He's never going to be included. Well, it, you know, it gets very ugly and very horrible. Daisy and Gatsby drive back to Long Island in Gatsby's car. 
Daisy is driving. You know the story. She ends up running over uh, uh, Tom's mistress, whose name is Myrtle. Gatsby then pretends that he was driving the car to protect Daisy. Well, the problem is, after that night, Daisy never sees him again. She completely deserts him. She and Tom go off on some extended vacation. Gatsby never sees her again. He does all this for this woman who just kind of ups and goes, right? Just takes off and leaves. Well, the mistress's husband finds Tom, who tells, his name is Wilson, who tells Wilson how he can find Gatsby. Wilson goes, finds Gatsby lounging in the swimming pool. How many of you have seen the Robert Redford movie? Right, where he's lounging there in the swimming pool, and he comes in, and it's just this great iconic scene, right? The American dream spread out in all of its weird little ways, right? Luxury, idleness, and then Wilson shoots him. Nick then tries to arrange a funeral. Nobody comes to Gatsby's funeral, except for Nick and Gatsby's dad, right? All those famous people, all those movie stars, the bankers, the senators that came to his parties. When Gatsby was entertaining, he was good enough. But once he was dead, none of them, none of them were there for him. So the, again, the hollowness, the shallowness of all of this facade, there's, it's like the library books. All of this facade, nothing behind it for Gatsby. It's just for show. So that is a harsh critique, right? It's kind of depressing, kind of a downer. Here's what I also think is in this book. Nick can't quite figure out what to make of Gatsby, and he's not willing to utterly condemn him. For Nick, Gatsby is both the best and the worst of the American dream. Before Gatsby dies, Nick says to him about Tom and Daisy, he said, they're a rotten crowd. You are worth the whole damn bunch of them. Right? That Nick sees something in Gatsby that's inspirational. At the beginning of the book, the beginning of the book starts with Nick having come back to the Midwest after his ordeal on the East Coast, and he's kind of, at the very beginning, he's kind of setting the stage. And he's talking about how, his, how living on the West, East Coast around all these wealthy people just made him cynical and depressed. And he just got disgusted with everyone, except, he says, only Gatsby. The man who gives his name to this book was exempt from my reaction. Gatsby, who represented everything for which I have an unaffected scorn. I, I hate Gatsby. Right? I hate everything he's about. Opulence, phony you know, conspicuous consumption just to impress other people. Ick, and then he liked Daisy, and we know how she turned out, right? Ick, right? If personality is an unbroken series of successful gestures, then there was something gorgeous about him. Well, there's a contradiction, right? And what a line. If personality is a series of unbroken gestures, right, then Gatsby was the master. You know, like a, like a, a film, like a series of scenes that create a story. That was Gatsby. He could just put together meaningless gestures that created a story. Then there was something gorgeous about him, some heightened sensitivity to the promise of life, as if he were related to one of those intricate machines that register earthquakes 10,000 miles away. This responsiveness had nothing to do with that flabby impressionability which is dignified under the name of creative temperament. It was an extraordinary gift for hope, a romantic readiness such as I have never found in any other person and which it is not likely I shall ever find again. No, Gatsby... Gatsby turned all out all right at the end. It was what preyed on Gatsby, what foul dust floated in the wake of his dreams that temporarily closed out my interest in the abortive sorrows and short-winded elations of men. That Gatsby, there is something repulsive about him and something inspirational about him. He is this romantic figure who somehow started out on a good path and ended up on a bad path because he got sidetracked by the worst of the American dream, the shallowness, the materialism, all of that stuff. Right? 
and the display of wealth, and yet he was also this inspirational figure who really was trying and striving for something, to be something better than himself. And Nick can't quite make out whether he loves Gatsby or doesn't. You see all of this at the very end of the book when Nick sums up his experiences. And he talks about, you know, he, he, he talks about, he's kind of reflecting on the whole thing. And he starts talking about the Midwest, where he's from. He's disenchanted with the East. He's going back to the Midwest. And he talks about, you know, the winter nights and going on sleigh rides. I mean, it's very Thomas Kincaid, right? And, and you, know, all, you know, the Holly Rees and all of this stuff. And then he finally says this, I am a part of that. A little solemn, I am part of that, a little solemn with the feel of those long winters, a little complacent from growing up in the caraway house in a city where dwellings are still called through decades by a family's name. So evoking this past in America where we were, it wasn't about materialism, we were connected by something deeper. I see now that this has been a story of the West after all. Tom and Gatsby, Daisy and Jordan and I, we're all Westerners, and perhaps we possess some deficiency in common which made us subtly unadaptable to East Coast life. Nick is now saying, no, it's the West Coast where the old values still cling, where the materialism hasn't crept in, where the Roaring Twenties haven't had their worst effect, where the affluence still isn't there. It's the West. The West still has the best of the American dream. I went East. That was a failure. I'm going back West because the West still has a spiritual quality about it. It still has a morality. It still has a sense of community, right? The East is about money and consumption. The West is still about the frontier ideal, only this time it's a spiritual frontier. It's a frontier where values are still values. And this is summed up in his last meeting with Tom, which is just one of my favorite scenes for, for lots of reasons, um, mostly because he bashes Tom and Daisy in it. But he, he runs into Tom, and Tom clearly doesn't care all the damage he's created, right? He indirectly caused Gatsby's death, and, and Tom doesn't care about it. And then, you know, uh, Nick kind of asks him, you know, doesn't it bother you, everything that happened? And Tom goes, oh, it's been excruciating for me. While when I went back to Myrtle's house, right, his mistress, right, I went back to Myrtle's house, and the dog was gone. And when I saw that dog collar, it was just excruciating. And Nick is like, ick, right? Because he's just so shallow. I mean, your mistress, what about your wife? What about this man you indirectly killed. And Nick then says, I couldn't forgive him or like him, but I saw that what he had done was to him entirely justified. It was all very careless and confused. They were careless people, Tom and Daisy. They smashed up things and creatures and then retreated back into their money or their vast carelessness or whatever it was that kept them together and let other people clean up the mess they had made. I shook hands with him. It seemed silly not to, for I felt suddenly as though I were talking to a child. Then he went into the jewelry store to buy a pearl necklace or maybe a pair of cufflinks, rid of my provincial squeamishness forever. So there you have the con. Nick, who still has this moral sensibility. Nick, who still has this sense that, no, we really should be better than just, you know, kind of casually breaking people's lives and not feeling guilty about it, right? But, but, but for the East Coast, that's just provincial squeamishness, right? They're too sophisticated for that. But what does Tom do to cover over all of his despair? He goes and buys something, you know, right? The American dream. If it, if, if, it, if it hurts, just go shop, right? Just cover over the pain with a new necklace and move on. And so Nick in that East-West thing there is saying, no, the West is still where it's at, only it's a spiritual frontier now of trying to reclaim something deep within us, trying to reclaim some values about what it means to be American. The Redeemer Nation, we're better than that, all of that. All right, the last thing I'm going to read is the last page 
which I think is one of the greatest passages in American literature ever. Ever. Let me go to location 2353. I mean, it, it sums up the whole, it sums up the American dream. It sums it all up. On the last night, this is Nick right before he's going back to the Midwest from Long Island. On the last night, with my trunk packed and my car sold to the grocer, I went over and looked at the huge, incoherent failure of a house once more. What a great description. Huge, incoherent failure of a house. This gigantic house that was, it just ultimately didn't make any sense, and it ultimately was just a failure and a facade. On the white steps, an obscene word scrawled by some boy with a piece of brick stood out clearly in the moonlight, and I erased it, drawing my shoe raspingly along the stone. Then I wandered down to the beach and sprawled out on the sand. Most of the big shore places were closed now, and there were hardly any lights except the shadowy, moving glow of a ferry boat across the sound. And as the moon rose higher, higher the inessential houses, great phrase again, the inessential houses, you're all facade, there's nothing inside, it's, the American dream has been hollowed out, it's all about just conspicuous consumption to impress. The inessential houses began to melt away until gradually I became, aw became aware of the old island here that flowered once for Dutch sailors' eyes. A fresh green breast of the new world. He's talking about Long Island. Its vanished trees, the trees that had made way for Gatsby's house, had once pandered in whispers to the last and greatest of all human dreams. For a transitory, enchanted moment, man must have held his breath in the presence of this continent, compelled into an aesthetic contemplation he neither understood nor desired, face to face for the last time in history with something commensurate to his capacity for wonder. And as I sat there brooding on the old, unknown world, I thought of Gatsby's wonder when he first picked out the green light at the end of Daisy's dock. He had come a long way to this blue lawn, and his dream must have seemed so close that he could hardly fail to grasp it. He did not know that it was already behind him. Somewhere back in that vast obscurity beyond the city where the dark fields of the Republic rolled on under the night. Gatsby believed in the green light, the orgastic future that year by year recedes before us. It eluded us then, but that's no matter. Tomorrow, tomorrow we will run faster, stretch out our arms farther, and one fine morning. And so we beat on, boats against the current, borne ceaselessly back into the past. That just sums up so much of the American dream, right? He's, he talks, it's, he's, he juxtaposes Gatsby's small dream, Daisy and materialism, against what was the original American dream, when those first Dutch sailors laid eyes on that continent that evoked in them a capacity to worship, right? That they had come upon something so new, so vast, so untarnished, and so filled with promise that it was a spiritual experience, right? Compared to the way it had shrunk down into the 20s. And, and, and the irony in, 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 the, in this last sentence, you know what Fitzgerald here calls the orgastic future that year by year recedes, right? And so we beat on, kind of trying to go forward, born ceaselessly back into the past. So we're back to the carousel scene in, in, in Mad Men. What we hope for in our future is already behind us. This is Gatsby saying the American dream has been evacuated in the 20th century of all of its meaning, but we can recapture it right? Back to something that wasn't just about money and consumption and materialism, but back to something that could inspire wonder and awe and work toward a better future together. When it was something bigger than our happiness, but when it was commensurate with the human capacity to dream and to believe and to imagine, 
right? When it was something that was not just material, but spiritual, political, social, and everything else. So I think what he's trying to do in this book is say, here's what it's become, but here's what we could be. It's back to the Redeemer nation, right? This continent was once something that could evoke awe and wonder, and it could be again. We could be about something bigger than what the Roaring Twenties are all about. For Fitzgerald, writing in the Twenties, he was fearful, and he was indeed probably believing that the best of the American dream was gone. That spiritual part of the American dream, the political part, the social part, was gone and had been reduced to nothing but the Roaring Twenties and bootlegging and parties and abundance and all of that. But one of the things, and I'm going to close with this, One of the things that is amazing about the American dream as you move forward from the Puritans all the way to the road or madmen is its capacity to regenerate itself every generation. Like it just when we, you know, this shadow side that is not going to last, it always manages to regenerate itself. Because Fitzgerald writing in the mid 20s, 15 years later by the 40s, what had happened? It was all back, right? And this time, not about materialism, it was about making the world safe from fascism. And then you move forward into the 50s and the 60s, where the materialism creeps back in, but also in the civil rights movement and in the Cold War, you still hear, we're the good guys, right? And the Redeemer nation, and let's rise to the angels of our better nature. And it becomes not just material, but political, social, spiritual. Take a moment like the kitchen debates between Khrushchev and Vice President Nixon. This was before my time, but I've seen YouTube clips, okay? Where Nixon, I think in a brilliant moment, and I, you know, Nixon certainly had his issues, right? But this was when he was vice president in the 50s, in what I think was a brilliant moment, points at a washing machine and points at a color t- TV set and says to Khrushchev, this is the best of our culture. Because this is what American productivity and this is what American capitalism and this is what American democracy can produce. As individuals are trying to make their lives better, they raise the whole level of the entire community and make these things available to everyone else. There again, you know, Nixon saw the material benefits of the American dream, but in that moment he raises the material up to something that was political, social, indeed almost even spiritual, right? Here's the best of America. And then if you've seen, if you've seen the videos, Khrushchev goes, no, 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 right? Takes his shoe off in the UN and all that, right? The American dream is always on the verge of dying, and yet it always seems to recreate itself, even in something like Occupy Wall Street. And I'm not making a political statement here. But you listen to the rhetoric from Occupy Wall Street and Occupy all these different places, right? And um, there's this rhetoric of, can't we be our best selves, as defined by the people who are part of that movement? Isn't, is, you know, the 1%, the 99%, isn't, it, isn't this about everyone having a fair chance? Isn't this about everyone being able to rise and go upward. I'm not saying I'm agreeing with that movement. I'm simply saying, you know, you can hear the rhetoric live on and on. Each generation recreates the American dream for better or for worse. It has a brilliant side. It has a shadow side. I want to close. This will be the last thing I'm going to do. Let me close with just some amazing words by an amazing American about the American dream that I think points to its deepest and its best qualities. This is what it says. And so even though we face the difficulties of today and tomorrow, I still have a dream. It is a dream deeply rooted in the American dream. I have a dream that one day this nation will rise up and live out the true meaning of its creed. We hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal. I have a dream today. 
With this faith, we will be able to hew out of the mountain of despair a stone of hope. With this faith, we will be able to transform the jangling discords of our nation into a beautiful symphony of brotherhood. And this will be the day, this will be the day when all of God's children will be able to sing with new meaning, my country tis of thee, sweet land of liberty, of thee I sing. Land where my fathers died, land of the pilgrim's pride, from every mountainside let freedom ring. And so let freedom ring from the prodigious hilltops of New Hampshire. Let freedom ring from the mighty mountains of New York. Let freedom ring from the heightening Alleghenies of, the Pennsylvania, of Pennsylvania. Let freedom ring from the snow-capped Rockies of Colorado. Let freedom ring from the curvaceous slopes of California. But not only that, let freedom ring from Stone Mountain of Georgia. Let freedom ring from Lookout Mountain of Tennessee. Let freedom ring from every hill and molehill of Mississippi. From every mountainside, let freedom ring. What is so radical about King is how conservative he actually is. What is br- one of the many things brilliant about that speech is all he does is he simply restates the American dream. I have a dream deeply rooted in the American dream, right? All he does is he holds a mirror to America and he says, this is what you believe. Is this what you're doing? And in doing that, he, 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 he is able to call out of America in that moment the best. The American dream has many shadow sides, and we've talked about it, but the American dream at its best is when it is bringing our best out of us, and it has the capacity to do that when handled correctly. That's all I have to say about that. (laughs) Questions? Barry, can, can we do just a little bit of Q&A? We have like about 10 minutes. You don't have to have questions. Um, often when we open the floor, nobody does. I don't ever know what that means. But um, either we stunned you or we were brilliant. I don't know. You have a question. Yeah. Or comment or additions. I got to ask you, Scott, because um, I lived in the Valley, and I know that you lived there as well. And the role that the Valley plays right now in, as sort of an embodiment of the, the American dream, um, almost in a spiritual sense, especially for young people or, or business people, I think it's become pretty... Um, I found it to be sort of a powerful thing. I'm just wondering what, how you felt about it. You're talking about Silicon Valley, right? Well, I mean, it's all, I mean, it's all there. You have all of these people who started from nothing and built these giant enterprises, and it's in California, so the whole westward thing... I, I would agree with you that it, it has taken on spiritual significance for better or for worse. I mean, I was a pastor at Menlo Park Presbyterian Church at the height of the dot-com boom. And as I said at the beginning, you know, the American dream often infiltrates our Christianity in interesting ways. And in, in, just in ways that, you know, we... we and some of the, even I and the pastors were guilty of this, believing that Menlo Park Presbyterian Church prosperity was of God, because we were somehow doing something right that no one else could do, which was the downside. But then the upside of the, I mean, I think the upside of the American dream in Silicon Valley is, look, it's not dead. I mean, this happens after the 90s, which happened after kind of there was this big recession, right, in the early 90s. And every time there's a recession, by the way, the American dream is dead, the American dream is dead, right? It happens every time, right? Every recession and the 90s in, in Silicon Valley was the sense of, oh, maybe it's not dead. So there's this kind of renewal of hope. Is that... It was weird to live there in the 90s. I mean, just 
strange. $3,000 bottle of olive oil at Drager's in Menlo Park. I mean, it was just strange stuff happening. Um, I just had a question because uh, at one point I wrote down that um, Gatsby was the American dream characterization. And then another point I wrote down that Daisy is the American dream. So I wondered if you could sort that out. Yeah, they're, they're both. Um, Gatsby is kind of the literary embodiment of the American dream in its, in its uh, positive and negative, right? The, what it's become in the 20s, the prosperity and all of that. So he is the self-made man, all of that. But Fitzgerald is also exposing the shadow side of each of those things. For, so that's the book. In the book, Gatsby is sort of the, the embodiment, literary embodiment of the American dream. For Gatsby, though, Daisy is his American dream. She becomes the goal that he is going for, the upward mobility, the way he's going to rise as an individual. She's his frontier. Does that make sense? Christina, do you want to add anything? I was just going to say about Daisy that they keep talking about her voice. Tina, where are you? They keep talking about her voice, and Nick finally says, you know what her voice reminds me of? Her voice sounds like money. Her voice sounds like money. Mm -hmm. so. Yeah, it's a, it's a great line. Yeah. I'm done. I'm done. We're so grateful once again for the Dudleys. Thank you, guys. <laughs> just a couple of quick announcements before you go. Uh, I'd love to see a, just a quick show of hands. How many of you, uh, this is your first time at a literary night? Okay. And how many of you, this is not your first time to a literary night? Very good. Thank you. And how many of you got a reminder email that this was coming and put it on your calendar? Very good. If you want one of those, be sure to sign up. Uh, and thank you for doing that as you came in. How many of you know that we now have a fireplace in our welcome room, lower library? How many of you know that we stream live Sunday mornings into the welcome room? If you don't get your seat in here, go right over there. Uh, how many of you know that we have story time for preschoolers and good books groups for men and women? Hey, the library, it's doing all kinds of stuff you guys don't know about. How many of you know that you can search our library catalog on your smartphone? And you can do it from home if you have internet access. So you can do that at home as well. Uh, it's the American dream. <laughs> We just want to let you know that uh, there are all kinds of resources at our library. We have expanded, we have lit added literally thousands of resources in the last year to our online resources. So we would really invite you to check out the library web pages on the Bell Press website. Uh, there's over 200 translations of the Bible. You never need to buy another Bible again. No, I didn't say that. Uh, but uh, there are all kinds of devotionals and all kinds of stuff uh, on our online resource pages. And uh, if you have a suggestion of a book that you think should be in our library, uh, you can go to our website and just suggest it right onto the website. Say, we th I think you should get this book for our library. That's a great way that we get suggestions for our collection development. And then we also, how many of you know that we have a wish list? Oh, guess what, gang? We have a wish list. 
So we have an Amazon.com wish list that lists all the books that if we had the resources, we would buy and add to our collection in this library at our church. So, and you have it in your programs. Pull out your little wish list. This is our wish list right now. Uh, some of the stuff on our wish list. And we are looking right now to add a whole bunch of Old Testament commentaries to our reference section and a bunch of other resources, parenting and otherwise, on our wish list. And you can make a contribution by donating a book to the library. Uh, so wanted to let you know that. Yes. The money that you gave tonight helps us do that as well. Uh, all of the offering, which you gave $1,100 tonight, thank you very much. Uh, that is great. That helps us throughout the year to do collection development. Anything that you help us buy off of the wish list just adds that much more that we can add to the library. Uh, and then um, finally, we just wanted to say that um, as much as we love Bing and Google, they are not the most helpful theological research tools in the world. Uh, you will find all kinds of wacko stuff out on the internet if you're looking for stuff related to spirituality and theology. So we are trying to position our library web pages as the trusted portal for you to find stuff that is going to work, <laughs> that uh, the pastoral staff feel good about. So if you have some questions about that sort of stuff, feel free to go to the library web pages or uh, contact me, and we'd be glad to point you in the right direction. We really do have wonderful resources. So we have a bunch of uh, refreshments out in the lobby and in the welcome room. would invite you to go out there. We've got a bunch of computers up that you can check out the website. You can go into both locations of the library. Check that out. And uh, again, I want to thank you for coming, and we will see you in the library.